friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I have something that I kind of want to pick your brain about. Okay. So um, this will end up actually being related to my topic, uh, which we'll get into in a minute. But just to give everyone here a context, this episode should be dropping in like mid-February, right? Yes. So, like, right around Valentine's Day. Um, We're actually recording it on New Year's Eve. And that makes me think, because, like, inevitably, as people start talking about, like, best movies for, like, Christmas time, they start talking about love, actually. I think those same people came up with a movie about, like, New Year's Eve and another movie about Valentine's Day. Uh, Now, I'm going to be talking about rom-coms on this episode. Spoiler alert. But I actually don't really like those movies. Those like, and what I mean by those movies, for those of you who haven't seen them, it's those movies where they're all centered around like a holiday or something like that. And it's all these like individual stories. It's usually like five or five or eight different individual stories all being jumped around. And sometimes they intersect a little bit. They're ensembles. That's always the big thing. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like you can have an ensemble cast movie, but these are all literally like they're basically stitched together short films, all of them. And I really don't like them. Like, I think Love Actually is a bad movie. Okay. I saw, like, half of New Year's Eve once and was like, this sucks. This is just Love Actually all over again uh, with different people. And I'm pretty sure, I don't, I don't think I even saw Valentine's Day. Or maybe I saw Valentine's Day and didn't see New Year's Eve. I saw one of them, like, halfway through and I just hated it and don't remember anything about it. But I've seen Love Actually a couple of times because it's just, like, the one that keeps getting played. Right, and and so that was going to lead into my thought on it, you know, like, I'm surprised to learn that Love Actually and those blank holiday movies are made by the same people, but that actually makes sense to hear you say it. Like, Love Actually to me is a pretty decent Christmas movie. Okay. I don't think I watch it any other time and I don't really think about it, but Mm. there's the, you know, there's the meme of Andrew Lincoln holding pictures up for Keira which is Knightley. a creepy fucking story but yeah. like and like i i hold that one at a much higher standard of quality than new year's day and valentine's day which i never i never cared to see because it was just so like trite and it, it seemed like a way to it, it seemed like an obvious ploy for cheap emotional um resonance with the audience mm-hmm. like i remember watching the preview for valentine's day because i think that's when i was working at regal okay and like just from watching the preview you can see that there's a big subplot where like i want to say it's andrew garfield <laughs> teaches susan sarandon how to love again by renovating a auditorium or that sounds something you know it literally sounds as you say that that sounds like there's an SNL sketch yeah. Mitch meeting to be like, okay, we're going to parody these Love Actually type of movies. What's something stupid and contrite we can do? Okay, we're going to have Andrew Garfield and Susan Durant surrounded on here. So how about he teaches her how to love again? Like, Right. Or there's, uh, I think it's the same movie, like Scarlett Johansson's talking to whoever the hell. And like in the trailer, he talks about how like, 
he only could ever see them being friends and, and she does something like, oh, okay, well, good, then I can do this. And then immediately strips off all her clothes and jumps into a pool. And is like, come on, skinny dip, we're just friends. And it's like, it's dumb. That's stupid as fuck, Andy. <laughs> I'm not arguing. I have not seen this preview. So whichever one you saw a preview for is not the movie that I saw. Uh-huh. I, and again, I cannot remember. I don't even remember who was in them, Andy. I can see the pitch meeting and I can see how the pitch meeting goes well, especially if somebody goes, it's love actually, but we're changing the holiday. Yeah, no. And, you know, and there's a few mo- there's a few holidays you can get. You can't make that with, like, Labor Day. But, like, you can do that with New Year's. You can do that with Valentine's Day. Right. I guess if you want to, you could make, like, a Mother's Day version. That's all, like, it's not love stories. It's right. just, like mothery stories and maybe some of them turn into like love stories because like a kid a mom's kid and it's a single mom and he's like encouraging her to get back out there like you could write that movie i don't mind the conceit just as we're sitting here talking about it under the context that you would do something different with every holiday like have you ever seen trick-or-treat no Trick or Treat is this phenomenal Halloween anthology movie. Okay. And it literally is like five or six different Halloween short films that are only interconnected because you wind up seeing, oh, those guys were in that one and they're walking down the street. Or, oh, that guy was the main character of another story. Now he's a side character in this story. And it's actually really well done. And it's fun and spooky in the Halloween way. And like a very good, like representation of halloween the holiday Mm. and love actually maybe isn't that it isn't like a perfect representation of christmas the holiday Mm. yeah but it's all the romance of christmas in a holiday it's here's the thing for me um i don't actually hate anthology movies at all i think you can do an anthology movie really really well um you know and there are great examples about anthology movies there is something about the placing it with a holiday as like your it 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 works so well on paper Mm -hmm. it really does i think that's that sounds like a solid movie idea let's do an anthology story with these slightly interconnected stories and we can do it at a holiday and kind of put them all into these themes of various kinds of love like right that works. I did see New Year's Day, I remember, because that's the one with Sarah Jessica Parker, and I think it's Chloe Grace Moretz. Ah. I'm pretty sure. Either Chloe Grace Moretz or Dakota Fanning, because I confused the two of them for a few years. Um, yeah, that's the one I saw. But um, but no, I'm I'm sitting here going, like, that's not a bad pitch, but there's something about actually putting it on there, and you have these actors, and you got to make sure that they get a certain number of good lines, and you have to have some stories that mean more than others. Like, Love Actually, famously, it's like, it is it Martin Freeman? Um, it's, well, are you talking, it's Alan Rickman is cheating on no, his wife. No, no, not that one. It's, okay, so one of the minor stories in Love Actually is that, I think it's, I want to say it's Martin, the guy who's um, Watson in Sherlock yeah, and he's the Freeman. Hobbit. It's him and, like, another actress who I don't remember who she is. But the point is, that like, they're both, they both work as stand-ins, like, physical stand-ins for movie sex scenes. So they're naked around each other for the entire day, and at, and they just talk and hang out. And at the end of it, he, like, asks her out. Mm, right. Like, that's the whole premise there with him. 
And like, that is a really cute idea for a short story. It's definitely like the most low stakes, I think, of all of them. And it's clearly there to be like, oh, let's just put these two charming actors who have chemistry in these weird, visually weird scenes that are kind of funny and just like cut things up a little bit. And let's put Rowan Atkinson in a scene for some, like those little stories cut things up. But I think the reason why you need those little stories to cut things up is because the big stories fucking suck. <laughs> like the Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, like maybe this is just me, but the way that that relationship is written, I don't care about either of them. Mm. Um, is it, it's, um, oh fuck, what's his name? Um, British actor, Colin Firth? Colin Firth? Irish, but I, I have seen Love Actually once and it's been a minute. Well, so. there's one, there's one dude who like falls in love with his fucking maid, I think. Maid or nurse or something. And he barely, doesn't even speak her language. And he like flies to go see her. And it's, it's dumb. It's really, really dumb, and it's just like, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. The premise is good, but the actual stories they came up with, I am more interested and find more enjoyment from the non-main stories, because the Andrew Lincoln story is creepy as fuck. The sure. Colin Firth story is creepy as fuck. The Liam Neeson story is creepy as fuck, because he's like, got his, he's trying to help his kid or his nephew or whatever yeah, like yeah. get a girlfriend and he's like giving him really bad advice like that whole movie bill nye is like a weird rock star dude yeah, and yeah. he just gives weirdly good advice but you also know that he got it because like he actually might be more interesting i'm not gonna lie but so many of those stories the ones that are like hooked in there are so creepy and weird and there's no commentary on that and i just I hate Love Actually. The more time that I spend with that movie, the more that I hate it, and the more that I think about these other movies, and I have very little interest in seeing them, but I'm just sitting here like, what a cool idea. Very shittily executed. It's it's lowest common denominator lazy in the way that Hollywood execs love. It's It's a movie meant for wives to bring their husbands to and girlfriends to bring their boyfriends to but it really like searches for the demographic where it's the kind of person who isn't interesting enough to be going to the horror movie or the raunchy comedy can i give you my hot take sure you've heard of movie 43 right yes okay have you seen it no okay it's not great but for those of you who don't know movie 43 is a different anthology movie and it's all these little individual vignettes. And spoilers, at the end of the movie, it's revealed that all of the individual vignettes we've been watching is one very desperate director trying to get, trying to pitch different movies to a producer and trying to get the producer interested in any of them. Huh. Um, and so it's, it's very raunchy, like literally Hugh Jackman in it and plays a man who has like testicles attached to his chin right and and like no one notices except for the woman he's going on a date with everyone else is just like oh my god he's so handsome like they're they're all bad but like ultimately movie 43 has a statement to make with the meta narrative i don't argue it's a good statement but it does make a statement with the meta narrative and and love actually try I will argue, movie 43 is smarter than Love Actually. That is my hot take. Not a big deal. Oh. At all. It's just, um, what is the story there? I'm here for it. I love it. We'll get dragged on Twitter for that one. Eh, will we?
I don't know. I know our audience. Yeah, we really won't. Speaking of our audience, if you're listening, you're part of it. Thank you for uh, uh, tuning in through that little amusing buffer. And welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. Every episode, one of us talks about something we love. The other one talks about something we hate. And that's not what just happened. Although I understand that love actually might be a later topic in this very show now. (laughs) And then... Then we take your relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And Alex, despite your uh, railing and harsh opinions, you actually have the love this week. I do, and I actually want to talk about the larger genre that movies like Love actually fall into, which is rom-coms, romantic comedies. Sure. So Andy, as ever, I like to begin with a question. And this one is uniquely suited to you, Mm -hmm. because you are my movie guy. You are the guy I go to when I have movie questions. So, as a fan of movies, a student of them, um, in some ways academically, in some ways practically, and in some ways just because you're a fan and you do your own study, where do rom-coms fall in the pantheon of genres to you in terms of how they're seen or respected compared to other genres? Sure, and, and I think, like most things, if you look at any one particular genre, you can see in the history of filmmaking it kind of has a roller coaster arc of being super highbrow and then super maligned and mocked Mm -hmm. or maybe the other way to say that is both of those sides always exist at the same time sure um for rom-coms you know i i think about the golden age of hollywood and you know you could just make a straight up like romance and get away with that but then if you wanted to have, um, you know, Marilyn Monroe or Audrey Hepburn and you wanted somebody who it's like, OK, it's clearly going to be about the romance and about like banging Cary Grant by the end of it. <laughs> but we want to make it fun and we want to have the girl have like some pizzazz. And, and so you get your some like it hot or your breakfast at Tiffany's. And those are classic movies i would say those are like the well-respected pinnacle rom-coms of yesteryear sure and then as you move forward i know especially like towards the 90s rom-coms became a joke genre or at least something to totally look at ironically because for every love actually or for every um uh, the lake house or sleepless in seattle Like, you would have a bunch of just these really lazy, half of the time it was Adam Sandler making, if you want to be technical, a comedy romance, like 50 Mm -hmm. First Dates. Um, It would be something that was just kind of thrown together, and we don't care because we know a bunch of housewives are going to bring their husbands to this. You know, Patton Oswalt's got a bit where he's like, why do they make Jennifer Aniston trailers? (laughs) It should always be the same thing. This week, Jennifer Aniston is trying to fuck. And it's a little bit like that, but I think in the past, like, five years, the rom-com has kind of had a renaissance where, more than anything, I think a, a very smart network executive decided to start using voices of people other than the same, like, old white guys who were writing these comedies before. And so we have this, like, this trend of really good 
really like sweet and different and unique, even within playing within the tropes of the genre rom-coms. And so, you know, I'm talking about all my, to all the boys I've loved befores or always be my maybes mm-hmm. stuff like that, where I think we've kind of had a turnaround in the genre um, where things are a little bit more just like more better than people expect them to be. I can at see this that. Point. Yeah, no. And you know, it was, isn't it always kind of a uh, stereotype of the, I mean, the shitty lifetime rom-com. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be honest, I don't remember the last, like, lifetime rom-com. Like, I really don't. I would argue a lifetime rom-com is a genre unto itself because there is always a soap opera-ian level of tragedy associated with the thing. Yeah. And I would, you know, I would even argue, we started talking about this with um, Love Actually, the Christmas rom-com. Yes, and I'm going to talk about that. Okay, well, perfect. Then I I won't take your point. Yeah, no. Oh, okay. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, the, I think the best place to start, and, you know, this is actually pretty normal. Um, the best place to start typically is with talking about definitions. Mm. So my favorite definition of a romantic comedy, there, there are many out there, but my favorite definition is very simply a funny love story that ends happily. Okay. Change any part of that, you no longer have a rom-com. Sure. You have a love story with a happy ending, but it's not funny. You probably have, like, a romantic drama. I'm thinking, like, um... Actually, I'm trying to... Actually, most movies that have a love story, when you think about it. You know, I used The Lake House as an example of a rom-com. Not a funny movie. That is not a funny movie. That is not a funny movie. That's a romance. Or, you know, a period romance is where that falls a lot of the time. Yeah, but it ends... but, But, you know, it ends happily, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Sandra Bullock figures out how to get to Keanu Reeves and meet up with him five years in the future, or yeah. however that works. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, if it doesn't end happily, you have a drama or a tragedy, a romantic tragedy of sorts. Yeah. Um, fuck, a walk to remember. Jesus Christ. Um, walk we- to remember, blue is the warmest color, I'm pretty sure. No, that's not. I was thinking of A Fault in Our Stars. Mm. That is another one. So, straight up, you... You change any one of those little... If it's just a funny movie that ends happily but isn't a love story, not a fucking rom-com, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. It's just a comedy. Like, you need those all those factors in place. Sure. There can be so much u- nuance beyond those basics, though. And I, I argue that's a lot of the fun of the genre. But overall, just, just the thing to keep in mind, those factors are always present. You change any of them, you have a different genre of movie. Now... As a genre, you could make the argument that it goes all the way back to the beginning of written stories. Um, most people can easily grasp saying that, say, you know, Much Ado About Nothing or Midsummer Night's Dream are romantic comedies. Yeah, okay. That's not a difficult thing to do. Sure. Um, fuck, Ten Things I Hate About You is just Taming of the Shrew. updated and put in a high school right like straight up um but the version that we're most familiar with now really found its ground in that post-world war ii era rock hudson doris day comedy kind of deal 
You know, you mentioned Marilyn Monroe. Some Like It Hot is a classic romantic comedy. And that was right of that era. I think it's a little bit just after the Rock Hudson, yeah. like, Doris Day heyday of stuff. Sure. Um, now, I will say, um, all movies utilize a formula. And a big criticism of rom-coms is that they utilize a formula. Fucking every movie utilizes a formula. If you don't believe that, you have not read enough about how movies are written. Period. Um, look up Save the Cat. Like, are you familiar <laughs> with Save... We've talked about Save the Cat on here, right? I don't have think we? so. No? Okay, so Save the Cat... I had to read this for a screenwriting class in grad school. But Save the Cat... I don't think it's the industry standard anymore. But for a good, like, couple of decades... Save the Cat was a was a book that basically outlines how to structure a script. Mm-hmm. And I assume you're familiar with like the rules of scripts where it's like at the halfway point there needs to be a certain kind of turn. Right. Um, you know, you have to have your inciting incident usually within the first 15 minutes of a 2-hour movie. The three-act structure. Save the Cat details all of that. It was written by the same guy who wrote fucking Blank Check, if you remember that Disney Channel movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, that dude That dude wrote a bunch of scripts, most of which didn't get made, but he also was brought on to, like, consult with a bunch of scripts, and eventually he wrote a book about script writing. Sure. Um, and he goes into all of this. So if you if you learn these things, you'll notice, okay, we're getting to the halfway point, so there's going to be a turn here, or... You know, we're 20 minutes into the movie and we know, like, Toy Story is usually considered the perfect example because Toy Story, like, follows these things to the minute. Sure, absolutely. These rules to the minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, so Save the Cat. Read that if you want to understand how scripts have been written for the last couple of decades. Uh, William Goldman also wrote a book on screenwriting that's very brilliant for that. But anyway, rom-coms are really well known for their formulas. Um, apart from all the standard script points... Uh, They typically involve two people with some form of emotional baggage that makes them sympathetic or interesting. Um, They have chemistry after either meeting or re-meeting or recontextualizing a current relationship if they already knew each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we've all seen the movie where there's the meet cue, which is a term Roger Ebert um, coined. The moment where, like, two people... I I think he specifically... He wrote an essay about it where he talked about the movie Lost and Found. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that movie, the two love interests are at, a, I think it's a ski lodge, and they meet once when they're both arriving, and then and that's their, like, meet-cute where they exchange all of, like, three or four sentences to each other, and then they meet again when they're on the ski slopes, and their relationship develops from there. The meet-cute, the cute meeting. Sure. Um... So that's one way. Another way is the, like, the person comes home to their town after they moved away to the big city and meets their old, like, old flame or their old crush. Um, Have you heard of a Ryan Reynolds movie called Just Friends? Mm, I have. I have not seen it, but I, I know of it. That's, like, that's that perfect uh, example of what you just described because they the, the thing everyone remembers about that movie is... The opening scene features Ryan Reynolds in a fat suit playing, like, the super chunky, like, nerdy, schlubby high school best friend of the girl who is not maybe the prom queen, but is, you know, beautiful and wonderful. And then fast forward 10 years and Ryan Reynolds looks Looks like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, looks hot, but still is like that that goofy person who, by the end of it, you just know is going to confess his feelings and fall in love. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that's like the re-meeting. Another one that's come up more recently, I think, is the recontextualization. Mm-hmm. Um, a, one of those crappy Christmas movies that came out this past year is called Midnight at the Magnolia. Okay. Um, and that whole movie is premised on the idea that the two main characters are best friends. They've been best friends their whole lives. And... Um, they run a radio show together, and they decide it would be, like, really good for their ratings if they pretend to be dating. Okay. And then in the course of pretending to be dating, they eventually date. And, you know, you watch the movie, and there are the moments where their relationship gets recontextualized. Okay. So okay. that's been a more recent thing that has kind of come up. Um, but, yeah, so there's the recontextualization. Either way, you will have these moments where... It's always it's always the knowing look. It's always the point where like one of them says or does something and the other one like looks at them and it's just this like oh oh I have feelings. Right. And and the you know the addictiveness maybe addictiveness is the wrong word but the like the the conceit and the joy of these movies and the reason they're a popular thing is always being in the audience's seat and having that omniscient perspective and either seeing the scene where somebody tells their best friend that, Oh, I'm, I'm really in love with her, but I just, I don't have the balls to say it. And then watching them spend an hour, not having the balls, but now, you know, they're in love. Or if you, you know, if you watch enough of these and can sense the pattern, just being like, well, yes, these two are clearly going to be with each other by the end of it all. Yeah. So, like, they get to know each other in that context. They meet some kind of obstacles, like one of them can't confess their feelings or they're in a relationship or some other bullshit. Um, Eventually, they kind of, like, reveal everything to each other. They split off. They come back together after one or both of them has experienced some kind of change. Um, In most cases, though not all, and I will talk about some exceptions... Um, they, uh, end up together in the end, they end up together, but either way, for it to be a romantic comedy, they have to be better off at the end than they were at the beginning. This is why Gone with the Wind can never be a romantic tragedy. Sure. But there are movies where, there are romantic comedies where they don't end up together at the end. It's few and far between, and I'd argue some of those are the best ones, but... That does happen. But the point is the formula is there. The basic definition of the, is there. The most interesting part is where it deviates. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, I will say if all movies are formulaic, some of the most interesting movies are the ones where they are instantly recognizable but are cleverly or uniquely altered to subvert the expectations. The best thing about rom-coms is the formula and the subversion to me. This is why I love them. Sure. So if we operate on the understanding of funny love story that ends happily and everything else is just malleable convention, these are how it normally goes, there's so much you can play with. You can have movies like The Breakup and 500 Days of Summer, which are two of my favorite rom-coms. I love both of those movies. It isn't... The breakup has Jennifer Aniston, by the way. The breakup does have Jennifer Aniston. That's that's her and Vince Vaughn, right? Yes. And then uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer. I haven't actually ever seen it, but doesn't that end with them not together? Yes. Okay. That's the point. With both of those movies, at the end, the reason why the breakup is such a great movie to me because 
that movie is 95% prototypical rom-com. The whole point of the movie is they're together at the beginning, they live together, they break up, and then neither of them wants to move out. Right. So they are still living together and are just shitty to each other for, like, a good two hours. Got it. Okay. Like, in the first 15 minutes, they break up, They and then Jennifer Aniston is like, well, when are you moving out? And he's like, what do you mean, when am I moving out? When are you moving out? Because neither of them wants to give up the apartment. Right. So Jennifer Aniston starts dating, and Vince Vaughn is a piece of shit who, like, become who like buddies up to all her boyfriends so that she never actually gets laid or she i, I don't even remember what she does to him because he's definitely shittier to her than she is to him yeah, but yeah, tracks but the point is by the end of the movie they have what actually is a fairly really dramatic scene where they talk about all the reasons they don't really work and vince vaughn confesses that he wants to get back together and spoilers for the breakup she basically goes i can't do this I can't. And then they break up properly and she moves out. And then the end of the movie is like a few months later, they are walking down the street and they, they both run into each other and they're like, hey, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Like, yeah, I'm doing good. And they're like, okay, maybe we should catch up sometime. Yeah, you know, maybe we should. They don't make any plans. So it's not like a like... Sure oh, they're going to get back together. Like, they're just like, yeah, nice to see you. See you around. And they walk off. Sure. And like, and that's, and you know, she makes a point about like, I need to learn how to value myself. And he, after she leaves, like has a moment where he's like, I blew it and I have to accept those consequences. And it's fucking one of the realest ass rom-com endings I've ever seen. It's still a funny ass, like romantic comedy movie. It's everything you expect from the formula. Until the end. Got it. 500 Days of Summer is weird because it's not told linearly. It jumps around in the timeline. Right. So at the beginning, you know that they're broken up at 500 days. And then it flips all the way back to day one and it shows them meeting. And then it's like flips around to day 440 and they're still together but not doing great. And then it flips forward to like day 20 and they're just, he just asks her out for the first time and it goes back and forth. Okay, got it, got it, got it. But at the end of that movie, they do not end up together. It does end happily. She ends up in a better relationship, engaged to a whole other dude who she clicked with really, really well. He realizes that he was a piece of shit to her who like put all of his fantasies and his beliefs about coupledom to her when she was, when that was something she was never interested in in the first place. And he learns to grow as a person. And like, it's, it's a great ass movie in that regard. The problem with that movie is there are people who sympathize with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character right. and he is a piece of shit in that movie. Sure. But people sure. are like, oh, he's so romantic and... That's, you know, that's the Rick and Morty problem. That's the Walter White problem. That's the Patrick Bateman problem. Yeah, sure. Um, but the point is, that movie itself is so great for that subversion. And they don't end up together at the end. You think they will. They, they do a whole fantasy sequence where he, like, imagines what it's like for them to get back together. But they don't get back together. Sure. Okay. All right. Fucking La La Land had that whole thing at the end. Yeah, La La Land has that. Um, you know, if we're talking musicals, um, the last five years sure. is the same exact trope where you know it does not end well, but it shows you the, the whole point of it is just watching the course of a relationship. Yeah. Um, so you can have it where they don't end up together at the end. That's like the classic way to kind of change it. You can have something like a Forgetting Sarah Marshall or a Maid of Honor 
where, you know, you have a heterosexual couple and the male lead occupies the more traditionally uh, female-associated emotional or practical place. Yeah. Anyone who knows Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the whole point of it is that Jason, Jason Siegel. Siegel's character is, like, broken and destroyed over the end of his relationship. And, um... Why am I blanking on her name? Kristen Bell's character is, like, trying to move on. And she is, generally speaking, for the most part, okay. But, like, her new relationship falls apart. But the point is, like, the whole time you're watching Jason Segel basically hit all of the marks you expect from the Lifetime movie female protagonist. Peter, as you know, I love you. Are you breaking up with me? Sure. You know what Jason Siegel makes me think of? And I'm, I'm going to throw a, a maybe not super hot take here right now. But I can think of a couple of movies that Paul Rudd did that are basically, they're, they're absolutely rom-coms, mm-hmm. but it's about uh, male friendship. Sure. Uh, you know, Jason Siegel made me think of I Love You, Man. Yeah. Which is a brilliant comedy and fits all of the tropes that you've described only the entire time Paul Rudd's relationship is as secure as it can be. Yeah. And it's his blossoming friendship with Jason Siegel's character that is where all the rom-com tropes go off. I'd argue you could say the same thing to a lesser extent about Role Models, which is the movie he did with, um, what's his face, Stifler from American Pie. Oh, God. I used to know his name. His name used to be worth knowing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Um, Sean Patrick Scott? I think so. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, um, yeah. no. And, and you know, if I want to talk about Paul Rudd, I can talk about This Is 40. Yeah. We know, which is the rom-com, like, it's a Judd Apatow rom-com. That Knocked Up are, like, the big Judd Apatow rom-coms. Yeah. And both of those movies are about, like, weird circumstances. Knocked Up is the rom-com about a couple that gets together, has sex, and then they get pregnant. And it's kind of the whole movie, it's kind of unclear what their relationship is at any given time. Right. Like, they try to have the baby together, but they're not necessarily dating. And they kind of try to be together, and then they kind of split, and then they come back together. And But it's still a romantic comedy. Sure. This is 40, which I think has characters from Knocked Up. It's supposed to be like the sequel, only yeah. it's all about Paul Rudd and I never remember Leslie. Leslie Nielsen? Leslie Nielsen was the dude from Airplane. That sounds right. Um, she's also Leslie Mann. Leslie Mann. It's yeah, but it's it's a romance. That's a romantic comedy that is about a married couple that are already together and they're struggling through their midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. And you know, spoilers. At certain points, it looks like they might break up. Sure. And ultimately, they do end up together at the end, if I remember that movie correctly. But you know, that's another romantic comedy that just kind of subverts the expectations because it's not about new young lovers. Right, totally. Um, I think of Silver Linings Playbook, which walks that line because it's, it's, I think it's ultimately a romantic comedy. There are people who call it like dramatic, like a drama because it has more dramatic scenes Mm -hmm. than most romantic comedies. But like, you know, The Wedding Singer has dramatic scenes and that is absolutely a romantic comedy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Big Daddy and Mr. Deeds have dramatic scenes. Oh, interesting. I wouldn't consider either of those romantic comedies, but I can see the argument for Mr. Deeds especially. I think Mr. Deeds probably more than Big Daddy, but you know, I I kind of think of those three movies as 
a three-piece. The Wedding Singer is absolutely a romantic comedy, without question. Yes. Um, and, you know, Fifty First Dates and... Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, like, once a decade will do a rom-com. You know that that's an agreement they have, right? That's probably where I had the thought in my head from then. No, seriously. Uh, like, pause from the topic for a second. They had so much fun working together, and they loved working together, and they're such good friends on The Wedding Singer, or became such good friends, that they just made a deal that every ten years, they're just going to do a movie together. Huh. And so every ten years, they do a project together just because they're friends who love working together. God, must um... Well, you know what? I was about to say must be nice, but that's how this podcast started. So. <laughs> oh, God. How much money did they, did they both get from those movies, though? I mean, uh, don't actually look it up. An I'll absolute shit ton from 51st Dates, I'll tell you that. Yeah, no, no. And The Wedding Singer was huge. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, like, uh, back to Silver Linings Playbook, that's the one with, like, Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper both are mentally ill. Right. Like, and, severely mentally ill. And and the thing I've got is David O. Russell, like, I think of the rest of his filmography, and colored by that, it's hard to see Silver Linings Playbook as a rom-com. But I also saw Silver Linings Playbook once when it came out, so I could just be remembering wrong. I think it's, a, you know, I think that is a very funny movie about a love story that ends happily. Yeah, all right. Like, it, again, it has dramatic moments. It has very dramatic moments. So by that definition is Meet the Parents a rom-com. Uh, hmm. I don't, think, I don't think of Meet the Parents as about a love story. It has a love story. Okay. But the relationship that Ben Stiller has with the female lead there, who I feel terrible that I don't remember who that was, eh. but that's the point. She is so... She is moderately incidental to the story. She's basically a MacGuffin between Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro, which does not make the movie sound good. Um, but the point of that movie is that that's an emotional conflict. That's a relationship movie between a man and what he hopes will be his father-in-law. Sure. Like, that is ultimately not a love story. That is a family story. Okay. So I would not argue that is a rom-com. But, you know, and, and that's and that's the tricky thing, because think of how many movies have love stories in them right you know you mentioned we know we just debated with big daddy and with mr deeds both of which have love stories in them i think every adam sandler movie has that romantic component even little nicky honey most movies have a romantic component even if they don't need one fair like one of one of the dumbest stories i ever read online was somebody talking about seeing moana with her boyfriend and her boyfriend, like, talking about it. He's like, I really liked it. And I really liked, you know, the way that their relationship went. Like, they really loved each other. And she's like, wait, did you think that that was a romantic relationship? And he's like, yeah, obviously. And huh. he's, and apparently, and this boy, and I'm sitting here going, I can understand how a person who maybe only watches, you know, certain kinds of very mainstream movies can sit here and go, and, and is, is so pre-programmed to read romance into every movie he watches that he can assume that interesting okay yeah so i mean that's there um you know the last kind of variation i did want to talk about is um rom-coms that are about how troubled and fraught and sometimes impossible love can be mm -hmm. so that's where you're getting into your when harry met sally's or your annie hall's um you know both of which i have seen referred to as the best rom-com of all time 
Um, I'd probably give that to When Harry Met Sally over Annie Hall. Sure. But both of those are legitimately wonderful movies. And, you know, all statements, Nora Ephron is a genius and Woody Allen is a monster. But, you know, Annie Hall is still a great movie. (laughs) And When Harry Met Sally is an incredible movie. And both of those movies are about how fucking impossible love is. There's a spider in the bathroom. What? There's a big black spider in the bathroom. That's what you got me here for at 3 o'clock in the morning because there's a spider in the bathroom? Yeah, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's just, it's it's the fact that you have this formula and if you if you know the formula and you understand it, you can deviate from it in these brilliant ways that make incredible art. Right. I, w- I would go ahead, I would go out on a limb and say that that is true of any genre of filmmaking. It is such a powerful tool to know how to make the thing perfectly. And, you know, that's why people study and study and, and work on their craft. And the one out of a million person who um, actually, like, goes to film school and it's worth their time. Like, you learn this thing inside and out so that you can begin subverting it while still playing within the tropes. And that is just brain cocaine. Yeah. And and, and the thing is, like, it, it, it takes the littlest twists. Mm. It really does. Sure. Um, before we wrap this up, I do want to mention that even if a rom-com does stick to its formula, goes by all the usual trappings, it can still carry this incredible value. You know, one of my favorites is, uh, have you ever seen Music and Lyrics? I have never heard of this. Okay, so Music and Lyrics is, it's Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore. The whole premise of it is that Hugh Grant is this, like, washed-up 80s pop star who um, largely just kind of goes around and does tiny gigs where he plays all of his old hits. And he's generally happy with that. He's accepted that. Um, But he gets tagged by this, like, current pop star who loved his old work to write a new song for him. But it's, and it's kind of like, it's clearly like George Michael and Andrew Ridgely and Wham. Like, that's where it's set up. Like, he had a partner who went on to be incredibly famous and he kind of got forgotten. Okay. And he's like... I need a lyricist. I can write music, but I can't, like, it only ever worked with this other guy who, like, I don't talk to anymore. And so he gets Drew Barrymore, who's this, like, um, kind of low, kind of writer who, for various reasons, hasn't written in a while to write lyrics with him. And it's a rom-com. Yeah. And it goes by all the usual, like, marks, Um, even with that premise. But I... The the it's very tropey and it has little to really make it pop beyond like some really fun music and a number of really enjoyable performances. Like they're very charming and they have good chemistry. But I love this fucking movie, Andy. <laughs> I love this movie so much. And there's and, and literally, like, other than the fact that it's kind of this weird rewriting of George Michael and Andrew Ridgely, I'm like, there's nothing that interesting about this movie other than I like the actors and it's fun. And it's got good music, but, like, I fucking adore it. You know, there's people who talk about watching rom-coms. Um, you know, we talk about the renaissance of rom-coms now. Yeah. Um, there, there was the 90s rom-com era, era with, like, your 90s to early 2000s, your 10 Things I Hate About You, your all the way up to, like, The Ugly Truth. Yeah. Which is, like, that weird Gerard Butler movie where he plays a, like, piggish dude but ultimately, like, it works out, like... Basically everything Catherine Heigl ever did, except, well, arguably Bride of Chucky. <laughs> 27 Dresses is a bop, is a bop though. Um, 
But basically, like, you had that era. Now you have the Netflix rom-coms. Right. Some of which are, like, those holiday rom-coms. I call them Christmas trash. And you've told me off-camera how much you adore Christmas trash. Oh, my God. Okay, y'all, around Christmas time, Stephanie and I, like, for the entire month before Christmas, we will just sit and watch whatever, you know, the night before Christmas, the all three Christmas Prince movies, Midnight at the Magnolia, all of the holiday, which wasn't very good, like... We we will sit and watch these movies and we're just and I'm and I'm literally sitting there on the couch just going trash 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 <laughs> put it in my veins. None of these movies are good. I think I showed you Night Before Christmas, right? You showed me and Mariah Night with a K Before Christmas. Yeah, and it was bad, right? It was really bad, but I did not have a bad time watching it. Right, and like okay, so. With those movies, there is there are people who say there is a comfort to that formula. It's the same reason people watch reruns, you yeah. know? People say that they... How many people say that, like, they just put Friends or The Office or Scrubs on or Frasier on in the background and they've watched the whole show, like, 900 times, but it's just comforting to have it in the background? I argue rom-coms, even formulaic ones, can have that value. And I think that they're worth people's time. They don't get a lot of respect, especially from dudes. I feel like when I was growing up, the trope was like, oh, my chick is taking me to some shitty rom-com. Yeah. And really, all I want to do is watch this shitty action movie. Because literally, yeah, it's like, you know, oh, man, I can't believe I have to go see what a girl wants. I just want to go see Rush Hour. Yeah. Let's. <laughs> Which one of those movies is stupider? I think that would be a legitimately, like, watch them back-to-back and try and figure out which one is stupider. Especially because I really hate Rush Hour. It is a legitimate debate. And the thing is, I enjoy both of those movies, but they are both very stupid. Sure. So, I I love rom-coms. I think that as a genre, they have so much potential as a formula that can be, you know, twisted upon. And I think even when they follow the formula, there is a value there. There is a value to cinema that is not ultimately super highbrow. You know, you and I both like schlocky horror movies. Absolutely. And those are as, you know, genre tropey and predictable as anything else. And sometimes have the potential to be incredible. And I don't like rom-coms being maligned when there's the only thing that really separates them from horror from action from these other genres that are also frequently disrespected by the academy but are enjoyed by a lot of people i mean frankly it's the fact that they're associated with women true um and you know i just don't get it i don't get why they get the hate that they do um you know there's the admitted point that they provide an unrealistic standard of love but so do fairy tales so do romantic dramas so do roughly every you know action movie or drama movie where there is a love story that doesn't really need to be there. Mm -hmm. Those all provide an unrealistic standard of love. You know, rom-coms aren't any more guilty of that than anybody else, you know? No, you're right. And so I I think this has been a great topic. We we don't have the time, so this is going to be another thing. But I would love to have an extended conversation with you about romantic sitcoms. Ooh. Because those are... The same thing, but 
more unto themselves, I feel like. But we'll save that for another time. I'm down for that. I, I think it is so delightful that you love rom-coms. Yeah. And especially as, as vitriolic and impassioned and... Um, angry. Angry and pessimistic as you can be on the show sometimes. It is... It's just so ironically appropriate that you love rom-coms, <laughs> so I'm okay with it. Oh, thank you, Andy. Do you want to get to hating on uh, Brett Easton Ellis <laughs> so we can yeah. get some rage out there? Let's take a right turn. Um, a man who has never seen a rom-com in his life and probably like just doesn't understand the concept. I would love to talk about why I hate author Brett Easton Ellis. Who for the longest time I thought was Eastman Ellis. I'll just go ahead and get it out there. Not related to Kevin Eastman, who helped create uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and as far as I know, isn't a piece of shit? As far as we know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Brett Eastman Ellis. (laughs) So, Brett Eastman Ellis, for those of you who don't know, is a writer and satirist. Um, He is most well-known for making the uh, the written version, the original novel of American Psycho, mm-hmm. um, as well as Less Than Zero and a, a couple of other books. And I always knew was a little bit of a misogynist because of American Psycho, but I didn't really know that he was just kind of a garbage person altogether. Mm-hmm. So to get into it just a little bit, Brett Easton Ellis was born in 1964 in L.A., and at different points in different interviews has said his childhood was incredibly abusive or mostly idyllic, mm-hmm. which I, I'm not sure what to do with that. I, I would say, oh, that speaks to maybe some repressed trauma. It is in that order, by the way. Mm. He, he when, when he first hit the scene, he would talk about how his father was incredibly abusive and his father was the motivation for the character of Patrick Bateman. Um, and then later on would be like, no, my childhood was actually pretty great. And I was too scared to admit that I'm the motivation for Patrick Bateman. Mm-hmm. But. Interesting. Um, in college, at the ripe old age of 21, uh, Brett Easton Ellis's first novel, Less Than Jake, became an instant success. Wait, Less Than Jake? Sorry. Less Than Jake is a band. Indeed. Andy. Let me take that again. <laughs> At the rival age of 21, his first novel, Less Than Zero, became an instant success, propelling him into stardom. You know, we mentioned The Last Five Years, uh, which is a popular musical, Mm -hmm. and in that musical, the male lead kind of has the same thing, where he's just like a struggling writer whose first book becomes an instant super hit. And I would argue, sitting here and learning that at 21, this guy made his nut and achieved a a level of infamy in the American literary circle and achieved financial success probably speaks to a lot of the other things about him that I don't really care for. Yeah. Um, Ellis became part of something known as the Writer's Brack Pack. Oh, God. Which uh, you might know more than I do. I just understand it was, you know, it was him and a a couple of other writers who I've actually never really heard of. Jay... Jay McInerney. Jay McInerney and one or two other people. And like the Brat Pack, they became famous for late night drunken antics um, while he put up his other books, American Psycho and The Informers. Yeah. Do you know anything about the the Writer's Brat Pack? So I don't know much about the Writer's Brat Pack, but um, Brett Easton Ellis and Jay McInerney, um, are you familiar with the 
book, and I think it was made into a movie uh, called Bright Lights, Big City. Yes. Okay, so that's Jay McInerney's big, giant success. Okay. Um, for those of you who don't know Bright, um, Bright Lights, Big City, that movie is famous for two, or that book is famous for two things. Number one, it's entirely in the second person. It is, you walked down the street, you entered into the hotel. Okay. You saw the girl who you fell in love with. Like, it's entirely in second person, um, which is a f- fun gimmick. Um, and number two, that is the most cocaine-riddled book. <laughs> that book is literally all about a dude who recently got dumped by, I believe, his socialite fiance, and he wanders New York City doing all of the cocaine. It is not very good. Uh, sure. Okay. But um, you know, it's it's fun in some ways. Um, but Brett Easton Ellis and Jay McInerney were famous as the toxic twins. Like mm. they basically in you know '90s and early 2000s New York were debaucherous monsters who just did all of the drugs and partied ridiculously and became kind of famous for these antics. Okay. Um, you know, arguably more than for their writing. Um, I think that there's something very Gen X about the two of them. They're very... Interesting, okay. Yeah, like, for for those of you who have seen American Psycho, and you kind of see that yuppie party scene that Patrick Bateman and his, you know, executive friends all hang out in, where they just go to, like, clubs and discos and do cocaine in the bathrooms and talk to, you know models and various other hot chicks worship at the gordon gecko idol and only care about consumerism and and the like the 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 financial kingdom that they build for themselves so i have talked on this podcast before about you know being in essentially writer's school getting an mfa in creative writing and having a large subset of you know my my cohorts my my, my people who would just destroy themselves substance wise mm. um, and who would and who would say shit to me unironically say shit like well you know we're writers we're supposed to be drunk and debaucherous all of the time um, I'd argue people like Ellis and McInerney did a lot for that image they made that image kind of a big thing you know they're kind of up there with your Hemingways and your uh, Hunter S. Thompsons. Ooh, okay. As your writers who are very famous for their substance abuse. Got um, it. You know, the difference is that Hemingway famously wrote very sober, um, and Hunter S. Thompson um, basically just did enough uppers to stay awake and write, but otherwise was more than content to write and edit sober. Um Okay. No one talks about that, but they're yeah. kind of up there with creating that image of that, you know, substance abusing writer type. Okay, and and so just to get into it, the thing that I think the most people know Brett Easton, Brett Easton Ellis for, and and the biggest point I can speak to him on is American Psycho. Yeah, I'd argue that as well. Um, you know, American Psycho remade into the 2000 film starring Christian Bale. Featuring Patrick Bateman, who we have already said on this very episode is one of the most toxically damaged, like, bad, do not root for this character, toxic masculine figures in in all of literature, mm-hmm. but is also um, seen as this 
fun, interesting, relatable, oh my God, I want to be him. Oh my God, he's so amazing. He's so hot. He's so financially successful. Yeah. It's like people who who say their favorite movie is Scarface and that they want to be Tony Montana. And they're like, you completely missed the point of Scarface. Exactly. And, and so like the thing is, Easton Ellis has been called a satirist because his books often entail shocking points of view expressed in an apathetic way. And American Psycho is, you know, that's that's the whole gimmick is, you know, Patrick Bateman saying in no way except physical appearance am I a human being. And like going into animal abuse and the grisly murder of women and children in this very like sociopathic manner of fact style that's the thing about the book that when it first came out people were like holy shit this is like mind-blowing in ways that make me scared and interested and holy shit Brett Easton Ellis you are this new like great satire master but if you really sit down and watch if you really sit down and read American Psycho it comes across as darkly misogynistic yeah it's hack writing. Yeah, I mean, and it's a thing where it's it becomes, you know, it kind of invented the trope of, oh, I'm just being ironic. Yeah, yeah. Can't you take a joke? Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing something horribly fucked up and offensive. Can't you just take a joke? Which is a very Gen X thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, continue. Well, I was just going to lead into the point, like, when director Mary Heron uh, made American Psycho into a film adaptation... She cut out a lot of the most depraved, dark shit that Eastman, Easton Ellis had in the book, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's still that's still a uh, a movie where someone almost gets uh, shot in the head with a nail gun, or Christian Bale opens up a fridge and there's a woman's severed head sitting in there. It's still got some like shocking ass moments, but it cut out a lot more murder and a lot more like. Uh, brutality of women and there be, it, it becomes that point of when is something art and when is something explicit and I would make the argument that the novel of American Psycho at least is much more reveling in the explicit territory yeah there was so so hmm I wasn't thinking I was going to be talking about you know Gen X edgelords <laughs> when when we when you brought up this topic and when I was pondering it. But, you know, when we talked about Kinnison mm-hmm. and how Kinnison, Sam Kinnison's comedy reveled in this, like, dark, cynical, always, like, bordering on and sometimes edging over cruelty. Yeah, which I presented as a love and, and totally got to eat a little crow now. I'm not trying to get you to eat crow on that, but I am pointing out that there's this was an era of that. Like, sure. there There's a lot that's been written. There's a lot of ink has been spilled talking about Gen X cynicism, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's the children of the hippie era. And those hippies... You know, when when they real when Nixon got reelected and, you know, then then you get to Reagan era, they put on their suits and ties and went to go work on Wall Street. Like it's it's the children of that era, those disaffected kids who just kind of figured out that, like, nothing matters. So why give a fuck? Um, And and, you know, art from that era, whether that's comedy or literature or movies, carries this this 
brutal irony and this idea that like because nothing matters sincerity is the worst thing you can have Mm. irony and detachment and cynicism are the only true way to view the world and brett easton ellis's work definitely loves to revel in that and when you look at something like american psycho it's it's shocking to be shocking you're right it's the can't you take a joke oh no i'm just trying to be shocking here's the thing if all you have, if your whole premise is, I'm being shocking to shock you. Like, I lived in that space for a minute. You know, we talk about early South Park trying to do shit like that sure. a lot of the time. All right, Token, give me a smooth bass then. I don't know how to play bass. Token, how many times do we have to go through this? You're black, you can play bass. I'm getting sick of your stereotypes. Be as sick as you want, just give me a goddamn bass line. And it's an issue that I have looking back at that period of time. Because when all when all that is there is let me be brutal to shock you, you get things like Michael Richards shouting the N-word to get shock laughs. And that didn't happen during the Gen X era, but he came up in comedy at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, when we see detachment, when we see things like Adam Carolla doing a roast for Comedy Central and doing an extended rant saying fuck you to social justice warriors who quote can't take a joke but the last thing i remember being a decent adam carolla i I don't remember a a decent adam carolla joke i really don't because adam carolla's comedy for a very long time centered on let me just talk about bitches being bitches which like okay fine if that's the premise you want to present to me all right, but I'll tell you what, Anthony Jeselnik does a better job of it than you do because at the end of the day, he's approaching it from a place of I'm going to use shock to further a point. Mm. But the ironic detachment when you're not sure, do you fucking mean this or not? Is this you or is this a character? If that's not clear, you're not a good satirist. You're just an edgelord. Right, and I think in the last 10 years or so, like... We've had this new millennial politically correct understanding where we've looked at certain figures and realized that they don't know the difference anymore and they don't actually know if they were ever joking despite the fact that they said they would or despite the fact that they said they were as well as just having an understanding of like, yes, we said these things and they were wrong and some people are able to admit that and apologize for that sincerely and some people are being Adam Carolla. It's the difference between Pat Oswalt and Adam Carolla. Sure. Um, and, and just to explain that, if you listen to Pat Oswalt's first album, it is horribly dated. Um, and in a later comedy album, he very much makes it clear that he like realizes those kind of jokes aren't okay anymore. But to bring it back to Brett Eastman Ellis a little bit, I keep saying Eastman. It's just stuck <laughs> in my head. Just call him Brett Ellis. Yeah, to, to, to talk about Brett. Um, <laughs> you know... It's, it's one thing to not like a man's critical work. There are some other things that I find just kind of personally concerning. Um, like I mentioned, he has stated that he himself is the actual inspiration for Patrick Bateman. And when the, the point of that character is, I am a dangerous sociopath masquerading in human skin and nobody can find me even though I'm a serial killer. Even if you're like extending that for the point of literature to say that, yes, that I I relate to that in some way, that's concerning. Um, Brett Ellis has um, 
over the course of his life in different interviews stated that he changes his sexuality depending on who's asking, mm-hmm. which I feel like is a much different thing than saying that you are omnisexual or bisexual or, or questioning. pansexual or questioning to say to, to say that. Yeah. I mean, in one interview, I might say that I'm gay and in another interview, I might say that I'm straight. Um, and historically, for the record, uh, Ellis has lived as a gay lived as a gay man for his for most of his adult life, even though he doesn't always identify as a gay man. Yeah, I I certainly don't want to get into any sort of trap of like saying that somebody's sexuality is problematic or weird, but when the guy makes such a point of having a vague and morphous sexuality, I find that a little concerning. Well, it's like, okay, so there's a Tom Hardy interview where um, an interviewer is kind of being a dick to him and is very much trying to be like, have you ever had sexual feelings for men or have you ever had sex with men? And Tom Hardy is basically just like, I'm an actor in Hollywood. What the fuck do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Which is Tom Hardy basically saying, I'm a bisexual, but also I don't want to fucking talk to you about my sex life. Sure. And he and and Tom Hardy does not openly identify as straight or gay or bisexual. He identifies as fucking private. And that's fine. That's fair. And that. Yeah, exactly. But the point is, it's 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 a situation where, um, you know, when when David Bowie got asked he was open about saying, I am a bisexual. I am a bisexual. I am a bisexual. And no matter who he was saying that to, the question still would keep coming up and up and up and up and up. For Brett Easton Ellis, when I read that, when I read him saying that he changes his answer depending on who he's talking to, there is a context in which that means Sometimes it's not safe for me to talk about this. Sure. There's another context where it's, I don't always know the answer myself. I feel like it's honestly and sincerely changed for me. And then it's what Brett Easton Ellis is doing, which I think is just going, I want to be shitty. Sure. I want to be shitty and I want to not give you a straight answer because I'm Brett Easton Ellis. And that's very much his entire thing. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think um, American Psycho, the book came out in the uh, late 80s and... You know, East Ellis for a lot of his career has actually gone into screenwriting and mm-hmm. hasn't written a terrible amount of books. I want to just finish this up by talking about Brett Easton Ellis in the modern era, <laughs> where he's maybe the most problematic and shitty of all. Um, the man has very much become like proud of his ability to quote unquote trigger millennials, mm-hmm. which is a red flag if I've ever heard it. Um, and recently, the last book he made was a series of nonfiction essays published as a book called White. In White, Brett Easton Ellis defends Donald Trump and Roseanne Barr and says that basically, like, people hating on them and there's this whole extended sequence where he goes into people called Donald Trump a racist because one time he said something bad about Mexicans and nobody like nobody acknowledges that he only said that one time. People just acknowledge that he said it and that's not right. And Donald Trump is a punching bag. And fuck you, dude. Um, at the same time, in the same book, he calls out Michelle Obama as quote unquote ridiculously condescending and says that fellow filmmaker Catherine Bigelow only won an Oscar for The Hurt Locker because she was hot. This is just a 
a spewing of bile and again very much triggering quote-unquote anecdotal stories to try and like drum up this whole thing about how he's so contrarian and i guarantee you the whole point of the the of white is to make people upset and drum up publicity and buzz for himself in that way yeah and it's it's because we're sitting here talking about it yeah and that's and that is kind of the point at the end of it it's it's the it's better to be if you can't be famous be infamous you know like it's it's that it's that idea that um it's your fault for getting upset when i say anything because what you should be is cynical and detached like me because i'm so fucking smart yeah it's it yeah no i'm 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 going to end this out by um we're gonna cite a new yorker article that just made my brain hurt uh the title of it is brett easton ellis thinks you're overreacting about donald trump and it is presented as a q a style interview and at one point the interviewer gets easton ellis in a trap of not being able to explain why he thinks donald trump isn't racist and why he thinks that donald trump's behavior is okay easton ellis um cites a fact saying let's say 50 percent of latinos are now approving of trump let's say he has a 50 percent approval rating from latinos the interviewer goes well that's not true but okay and easton ellis's response is well whatever it's not the end of the interview, but that is in the interview. I, I think it's worth a read. Um, if nothing else, to show my point, this this guy is a a real piece of shit, I think, at the end of the day. And I would make the argument that his greatest cultural achievement was American Psycho, which had a actual, like, feminist director come in and rewrite the movie and is still misinterpreted by modern day edgelords and idolized for all the wrong reasons yeah but it it came out the same year as fight club and they very much i feel like you can watch those movies in conversation with one another very very much absolutely Uh, so don't buy his books y'all don't buy his books read the article and then maybe put him out of your mind i'm certainly gonna try to i'll link to it in the show notes uh meantime should we do this question hell yeah all right um should i read this one or you, you read the stuff at the top so i'll read this one okay all right so this is another one from relationships.txt um background My ex-boyfriend broke up with me about a month ago after we dated for six months. We ended on okay-ish terms. He didn't cheat on me or anything, but I was pretty sad and still am. I really cared for him, but he basically decided we weren't compatible long-term and it was best for him to end it. Okay, whatever. He wanted to be friends, but I told him that would be too hard for me and requested no contact. He did text me about a week and a half ago to tell me the Christmas present he ordered me before we broke up came in and asked me if I wanted it. I was annoyed he texted me and didn't respond. Other than that, we haven't spoken. Important note, my ex has a very good salary, and while he was generous with me, he is very frugal, almost to a fault. We live in a city, and my ex lives like a seven-minute walk from me. He has to go to a laundromat while my apartment building has free laundry. The front door is keyed entry, 
but there is a box where you can put in a code to gain access. Each resident has a unique code. I gave my ex my code so he could come and go as he pleased. The code is supposed to be for personal emergency use only. Uh, my building manager told us not to give them out to friends, delivery drivers, etc. Those people are supposed to use the call function. My friend who lives in the building called me and told me she saw my ex doing his laundry. There is no doubt in my mind he is using my code for the laundry. There's no way he has other friends or a new girlfriend here. I am honestly so upset and feel violated. It's especially worse because he has plenty of money and can afford $8 a week for laundry. My question now is what do I do? I really don't want to talk to him, but I am just so angry. Obvious answer is to tell the building manager to change the code, but I don't want to get in trouble for handing it out. And also, I want to call him and give him a piece of my mind, but at the same time, don't really want to initiate contact. Also, I'm pretty sure he still uses my parents' Netflix, which is an easier fix, but obviously, I still feel mad. Mm. Okay. First thing we need is names. And we've talked about rom-coms a lot this episode, and so my brain is sort of stuck in that space. You got something for me? Maybe. This sounds like it almost... I mean, this sounds like the opening beats of a, a rom-com, and this the, the ex-boyfriend is clearly that very shitty toxic ex-boyfriend <laughs> who you hope that your heroine will get away from by the end of it okay and that makes me think of nick and Nora's infinite playlist oh my god so nora nora and what was jay baruchel's character's name oh i don't remember but i'm i forgot i forgot exactly that it was jay baruchel and he makes me so happy so i, I do love him and it's one of the only movies where he like plays a bully yeah Oh God! Um, Tall. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we got Nora and Tall. Okay. This feels pretty appropriate to me. All right. I am here for. By the way, I love Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Oh my God. What could possibly go wrong? If you touch one hair in her head, I will kill all of you. Nora, I'm being carried. Oh. oh. She'll be okay. That movie's incredible. It is a solid-ass movie, absolutely. Straight up. Um, so, hi, Nora. Um, first of all, my condolences, because this this is weird, but this is weird in a way where I absolutely believe it's true. You know, we've, we've gotten a couple of questions off relationships.txt where... We've wondered if they were real. We've wondered if they were real. I absolutely believe that this is a thing. I absolutely believe that there is some, like, absolute shitty guy who has the money but like thinks he's doing the right thing by breaking into his ex-girlfriend's complex just to use the laundry machine mm -hmm. and my answer will touch on this a little bit um so the first thing is i would i would honestly encourage you to not communicate with him to not talk to tall you, you say that you want to you know, you're, you're really so mad and you want to give him a piece of your time. I wouldn't give him the attention mm. because aside from the cheap, quote unquote, frugal aspect of this, this is very much him knowing that it's an excuse to get you to talk to him. And in it being an excuse, it is incredibly uh, shitty and manipulative to be thinking that like, I'm going to keep using her code because sooner or later she's going to have to talk to me and tell me to stop. Hmm. 
I think that's what's going on here more than him not wanting to spend eight bucks for laundry, but I'm sure he thinks that's a benefit. I think you got to bite the bullet and tell your uh, landlord about the code. Maybe you don't even tell your landlord that your boyfriend has it or your ex-boyfriend has it and that's a problem there. I'm wondering and I'm trying to think if there's another plausible reason you could ask for it to be changed. Um, and, and you know what? Here, here, here's what you do. You go to your landlord and you explain that, hey, I'm really sorry. I had written down the code at one point because I, I didn't want to forget it. And I recently lost my purse or, you know, lost the piece of paper that has the code. I don't know if anybody has it, but I think that you should change the number and I will, you know, memorize it this time. And, and that is a way to get tall to stop coming in and using your laundry without actually engaging with him in any way, shape or form. And since you're worried about your landlord having an issue without like telling him that you kind of sort of disobeyed the rules. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know what's in your lease. Um, but I sincerely doubt that, you know, that being the case, I mean, it's, it's very, very normal for, you know, if you, I'm, I'm in a key, I'm in a key access apartment. Um, Andy, I, I, you are as well. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure that if I went to my, you know, place and I was like, Hey, heads up. Um, I made a, I made a copy of my key and I gave it to, um, someone and cause I needed them to come water my plants while I was out of town. Um, not that that happens during COVID, but, you know, in a post-COVID world, I've given my key to a hypothetical person. And then I found out that that person, um, you know, did something and I don't want to have contact with them anymore. Can you come change my locks? Maybe they'll charge me a fee. Maybe they'll charge me, you know, 30 bucks for the change and the two new keys. But they'll fucking do it. Yeah. Like, that is fine. You you can make Andy's excuses perfectly fine. Again, you can also just say, like, hey, I gave my boyfriend the access because I was out of town and he was going to come water my plants. There you go. And then you say, we broke up. I have a feel. I, I don't feel safe. I don't want to. I don't want that to happen anymore. Your landlord goes, well, you shouldn't have given out the code. You go, I know, but I'm sorry, dude. He, you said use the call box. Who was he? Who the fuck was he going to call? Like, it's fine. Just change the goddamn code. I won't do it again. Sure. Like, it'll be okay. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you, especially when it comes to things like um, breakups and relationships, uh, and I'm not going to lie, you, you know, you are a, I didn't say this when I was reading it, but you are a 25-year-old woman. He's a 25-year-old man, um, as you state in your question. Y most landlords, most building managers are not going to sit here and be like, Oh, yes. Do I want to risk what could potentially happen if this asshole has access to the building? Like, they'll just change the code. Also, lock him out of your parents' Netflix. You can just log into the computer and remove it. Like, that's right. fine. Absolutely. But, like, I'm, I'm, I'm with Andy on this. Don't make contact. Um, I know you want to give him a piece of your mind. I know that that's, that'd be so satisfying. But contact will only encourage more contact. A message will only encourage him to continue on. And the fact is, you know, I don't know if he is doing it to initiate contact. Um, Andy's interpretation may very well be possible. It is entirely also possible that he's just a cheap bastard. Yeah. Because I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I know people who live in a city and free laundry 
is nice. It's not nothing, I will agree. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you say it's eight bucks a week. That's, you know, um, that's 32 bucks a month. You know, that's, you know, almost 400 bucks a year. Like, that, that adds up. Even if, even if he's a... Ch- and he might just be a cheap bastard, but just... Changed, have the code changed. You might not even need to give them an excuse. Just say, hey, I'd be really more comfortable if we changed the code. Yeah. I just need my code changed. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, you could even say that he stole it. You can say that he looked through your phone and got it. Like, that's not your fault. Or he hacked your email. Whatever. Lie however you want to lie. Say whatever you want to say. Get them to change a code. No more contact. Block his number. Yes. You know, you, you, you've done the right thing by explaining that you're not in a place where being friends is okay um and you're taking care of yourself in that way there's no reason that you should stop taking care of yourself now if you're not ready to see the guy you're not ready and maybe getting kicked out of his free laundry situation will make him not want to be your friend anymore and if that's honestly the case then you know he can go he can go screw off and isn't worth being your friend anyway um i get the sense that like you want to heal and maybe come to a place where you can be friends and maybe this guy just is a a incredibly cheap bastard and you guys can have a friendship maybe this is a very bright red flag for problematic behavior and you're just better off trying to excise him from your life altogether you know, you mentioned that he's only a seven-minute walk away, so he lives probably the complex next over from you. And so that makes this no-contact thing a little harder to square. Um, you know, in case he's not just a cheap bastard, I would be wary about him trying to, like, meet up with you outside your apartment or, or catch you coming home from work or something. Um, and so absolutely... Maybe this is a little overdramatic, but have a measure or two so that if you have to see this guy and you don't want to see him, you have a safe and okay way out of that situation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Just if I can, conf- I, I always try and get like a deeper message out of these questions, um, even more than the practical advice. And the deeper message that I will say to you is closure is frequently overrated yeah you know people say that i'll i'll be able to heal much better if i get closure if i can talk to them if i can tell them what's in my head and it's and and here's the point if you are a self-sufficient person if you are a properly independent free-minded person um and you know maybe that's something you're on your way to with this situation if you you shouldn't need to tell someone what's in your heart in order to make peace with them and send them on their way. You know, there's a lot of people who, you know, they never get the chance to confront their abuser or they never get the chance to tell, you know, their father what a piece of shit he was before their father passes away. Or, you know, they never get to go back home and confront their high school bully and you know properly tell them what's in their heart and they cling to that but that's not a your other person problem that is a you problem you need to be able to let that go and the way to do that is to completely demolish any con any contact 
as well as remove him from your space. So take those steps and work on yourself as far as being okay in your own right without closure. You can make your own closure within yourself. It just takes work. Absolutely. And so we wish Nora the best, you know, as usual, we'll, uh, we'll link this onto the thread. If you are listening to this and you have a relationship question, if you have an ex who is doing some concerning or if nothing else, annoying behaviors, if you have a current romantic partner who's doing some concerning or annoying behaviors, if you have a family situation, a pet situation, if you have anything that you would call a relationship question and you want our perfectly unqualified advice, we're more than happy to give it. You can send those questions into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read it. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey, Mom. Um, we would also super love it if you reviewed us on any and or all of those. Uh, and you can tweet us at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, with your questions, and follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. If you enjoyed the, uh, we talked about movies a lot more than normal. Yeah, uh, we don't episode. usually do that. Like, that, made, that made me really happy. Um, I talk about movies on my other podcast, Cult Fiction, which I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. We talk about cult movies. There are more than a few cult rom-coms. I think Sleepless in Seattle is something we will watch at some point on some day. I'm if you had to have made too much money eh, we'll find out all right um but you can find cult fiction uh, everywhere that alex listed you can find here including twitter and you can also find me andy bowell at jovocop 2113 on twitter that's right and i'm at a underscore x underscore r-u-i-z on both twitter and instagram I'm and uh and tiktok too i actually posted another tiktok or two so uh yeah i think i've got like three at this point um thanks for listening y'all um please tell your enemies